Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the saint of Canadian cinema. Yeah. It is Adam Agoyan. Yeah, if you, you know, are interested in cinema in Canada, if you followed the Canadian film industry, if you grew up in the 90s in Canada, it was impossible to not hear about Adam Agoyan. He was Canada's official filmmaker, perhaps even still is. However... I feel like whenever I hear him these days, I hear people ragging on him. The Sweet Hereafter is considered one of the greatest Canadian films of all time. Sure. Like, you cannot read any textbook without that film coming up. But there's something about the fact that because he became, you know, the king of Canadian cinema, even though he made these difficult, impenetrable art films in the 80s, he's regarded as this kind of establishment figure now. And the fact that, I mean, frankly, he's been on a bit of a losing streak lately, I think makes him... It just makes him like the perfect easy target for people who want to complain about the Canadian film industry. Yeah, when you're talking about funding or something like yeah. that, you go, look at Adam McGoyan. Why, why does Adam McGoyan, you know, 10 flops in a row, why does he keep getting money? And I, I sympathize with that somewhat, to be honest. <laughs> we got to say right off the top, too, that Adam McGoyan, as people that live in Toronto ourselves, he may be the filmmaker who it's the most probable that this could somehow get back to him. Yeah. Like, we joked about Paul Gross and stuff like that, but when we mentioned to people that we were doing an Adam McGoyan episode, everybody had a story of meeting him personally. Yeah, I've met him. Have you met him? No, I have not. Okay. Well, I assume that, like, I have come across him, but I didn't know who he was. So. I, I see him around at a lot of stuff, especially at the Lightbox, you know. And you interviewed him, didn't you? When I was 18 years old, he was one of the first people I interviewed at the school newspaper at, at U of T, yeah. And did you feel you got a good interview out of him? Yeah, he was very forthright, very pleasant. You know, it was really cool for me just coming out of the suburbs, coming downtown, working at the paper, and now I get to like spend an hour in the company of this great Canadian filmmaker. Yeah, it, like it was a big ego boost at the time. And you mentioned last episode as well that you've seen all of his movies up to a certain point. There was a feeling that these were important. Yeah, definitely. But then the losing streak started. And I remember seeing Chloe at TIFF. Uh, you've seen Chloe. Yes, I watched it for this week. I have to admit... <sighs> that I don't believe I had seen an Adam McGoyan film in its entirety before doing this episode. That's amazing. And I went balls deep. <laughs> I watched 10 Adam McGoyan films. Okay. A pal of mine, when I mentioned we were doing this episode, went, oh, you're going to be watching Calendar again, right? And I was like, what? No, I never said how I watched did, How that. did you miss Calendar? Because those of us who went to U of T film studies. Well, listen, some of us are dummies it. here. Okay. I did not study film. I took one film 101 class at York University, and I hated it. Okay. So it never actually came up. Yes. So you didn't see The Sweet Hereafter? You didn't see You didn't see any of these? Nope, none of them. Wow. Not even Exotica, which was his big hit, and is one of the movies that we watched specifically for this podcast. You know what's funny? Like, we're talking about Adam McGoyan as if he's something that, like, is this cultural obligation. He's something that everyone has to see. I think this is just our Canadian perspective, because if you're in America, I feel like his, his stock has always been comparable to somebody like Hal Hartley maybe mm. or or john sales like i think he's kind of at that level in america you know what do you think they've forgotten all the new movies that he's made well yeah but also i think how how big was his biggest impact was the sweet hereafter where he mm -hmm. got a best director nomination i think he was always kind of a niche taste in america you know here in canada because there's an infrastructure in place for somebody like adam mcgoy and there are public funding bodies and there's kind of a there's the toronto film festival 
in addition to that, you know, Egoyan is very active in a lot of other media. He directs operas here. He does gallery installations. He directs plays. Yeah, uh, I, he did some Samuel Beckett plays that yeah, you can he, find on DVD. He did uh, Crap's Last Tape, which is a very good production, in my opinion. He's unavoidable in Canada. Yeah. Well, come on, let's talk about Exotica, which you watched a few days ago, right? Yeah, I did. I, and I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. It's a good movie. Yes. It's one that I have trouble connecting with. And I think as I watched the three Egoyan movies that I watched this week, I did not go <laughs> crazy like you did, because I've seen all of these before. Yeah. And he's not the easiest filmmaker to just, like, sit back and have fun with. No, he has his pet themes, right? That he hits yeah. over and over and over again. But, uh, like, as I was watching it, I was thinking, maybe I've kind of lost my taste for Adam Egoyan a little bit. I respect him. He deserves your respect for the movies he's made. But, I don't know, there's something about the music in his movies by Mikhail Dana. There's something about the kind of dreamy atmosphere of his movies that starts to feel a little more like awkwardness to me at this point. Hmm. There's something about the puzzle box narratives that he always does. That he uses in almost all of his films. Which, frankly, I find a little annoying now. I don't particularly like when a clever director is very deliberately withholding information from me in a very showy way. I can really feel the gears working. So when I watch Exotica, it was the first Adam McGoin film that I just really jumped into. For the first 40 minutes, I was like, what the hell is going on? Because he lays out all of these disparate characters who seemingly have no connection to each other. But once it started gelling, it really started working for me in a way that got me excited about seeing his other films. Mm -hmm. But then when I watch stuff like Ararat or Remember... What I discovered is that he keeps, like, playing these same notes over and over again. Yeah, well, with Exotica, I think my first barrier for access of this movie was the strip club in this movie. Most of the movie takes place around a strip club, and there are, I don't know, six or seven characters who are circling it. You've got the this tax auditor... Played by, uh, which I discovered watching these Canadian films, Canadian mainstay Bruce Greenwood. He's in every Canadian film. Yeah, a tax auditor who is obsessed with this young stripper, played by Mia Kirshner. Meanwhile, the tax auditor is auditing uh, Don McKellar as this sort of like awkward... Another Canadian mainstay. Yeah, I, I love Don McKellar, playing an awkward guy who's like involved in a smuggling operation. Uh, he's also um, a pet shop owner, and yeah. he likes to go to the opera to pick up men. Uh, there's also the strip club DJ, played by, I forget who it is. Uh, with Casey Jones with, from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. With crazy long hair. And there's the owner of the strip club, played by Arsene Kanjian, also known as Mrs. Egoyan, mm-hmm. who's in all of his films. She's kind of his Rebecca Pigeon, who's David Mamet's wife. Ah, yes. The person who you see in all of her husband's movies and never in anything else. <laughs> well, that's, that's a lie. That's not an insult. She was in Fat Girl. She played the mother. That's true. And she's in Irma Vep as yeah. well. So she has been in other things. That's not an insult against her. I'm just saying. So the strip club in this movie... It's like, no, uh, I've never been to a strip club, so I don't know. But Yeah, maybe I, they're all like this. Maybe they're all, they all are, but like, it reminded me of, you know, the mansion in Eyes Wide Shut or mm-hmm. something, except it's not supposed to be surreal. You so don't think it that... is? Because like, watching a lot of his films, that kind of weirdness is what I was attracted to, and it felt very potent in something like Exotica. Yeah, people say that Exotica has this very hypnotic atmosphere, so I don't know, maybe it is supposed to be weird. It's hypnotic in a way that that I had trouble with. Mm. It's it like... I don't know how to explain it, except there's just some basic chemical alchemy in me that is resistant to the way the music sounds Mm -hmm. and the way the characters in the movie act in this kind of like slow paced way and the way the story is told. But like if I stand outside myself for a minute, it's an engrossing story. Yes. And I feel that the reveals are built in ways that are emotional 
and kind of moving by like even the final shot of the, the final film. shot is really mm-hmm. incredible i think yeah and i think that once we started reaching that kind of plateau is when i started going with it but at first i'm like oh man i'm gonna have to watch a lot of these movies aren't i well another thing about it going is his movies are full of moments where i see it and i'm like okay this is the moment that you write your essay about that, i know that's what i thought when i watched calendar i'm like well this is a film they show in film class <laughs> so i was looking at the wikipedia page for exotica which is where i do all my research of course <laughs> yep. Um, and it said, I picked up a book on Adam McGowan at the library and it was just synopses and I put it right back on the shelf. <laughs> well, it was saying that Egoyan was inspired by the idea that at a strip club, you know, what is the place of a strip club in a highly sexualized society? And Egoyan was intrigued by the fact that men couldn't touch the strippers who mm-hmm. were doing a lap dance. And what does that mean? And I can just imagine someone reading that and kind of like stroking their chin <laughs> over it. Like, oh, yeah, isn't isn't that strange that a strip club is, it's supposed to be about connecting with another person. But yet, you can never connect yet, with yet them. yet there are barriers. You can't, you can't touch. It, it, there, there is no intimacy possible. It's an illusion of intimacy. And I read it and I kind of think, yeah, like, <laughs> we, like we all know. <laughs> but, you know, even... But I mean, it is interesting, actually. It is an interesting point, but right? Like <laughs> you were saying, it's the way uh, a lot of his movies are presented, which is in the slow... Let's say kind of Ponderous. this is important. You're going to have to write an essay about this. Or like, so pay okay, attention. There's another scene in Speaking Parts, one of his earlier films, mm-hmm. when two people, basically Egoyne invented Skype sex. Okay, mm-hmm. Two people who are seeing each other in different rooms and they're connected by TV monitors are masturbating to each other. Like that is the quintessential, like, write your essay on this moment. Yes. But I think you're supposed to look at this and think, isn't it weird that technology is alienating us and we're mediating our relations with each other through technology? And, and isn't that, isn't that something to be concerned about? But I look at the scene and I kind of think, well, isn't this nice? The two people (laughs) who aren't in the same room can connect in a way. I don't know if I share Egoyan's technophobia. But do you think that you're approaching that from a perspective of someone where the technology that he was kind of like doomsaying in all these early films and the barriers that they were presenting have become the norm now? Well, I've definitely grown up in a yeah. different atmosphere than he's grown up in. Because for people that don't know, all of Adam Agorian's early films are all the way that people and relationships are kind of um, formed or distanced in the face of video technology. Right. And that's something that he kind of got away from as he went l- later on, even though that Although, I think, adoration. adoration. Yeah. He, adoration uh, is very much about Skype and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's suspicious of it. He shows social media as being kind of a breeding ground for hate and other things. I mean, I don't know if I, I just don't know if I agree with him on that. I think social media, there are obviously bad things about it, but I, I think it's connected people in a way that we could have never imagined. But Exotica is a weird one because it doesn't deal with technology. No, but it deals with, I don't know, I guess power relations. Yeah. And, uh, and the sense of loss and how people deal with that. Yeah, and try, trying to connect with other people through these sort of structures that aren't conducive to connecting with So people. it's just another Ca- metaphor for technology. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and as I watch these 10 Adam McGoyan films, for people who want to know which ones I watch, Adam McGoyan is sitting being like, I want to know if you got a full picture of my filmography. Adam McGoyan has heard worse. Okay? <laughs> I think we're being very fair to him. <laughs> I watched Family Viewing, Speaking Parts, The Adjuster, Calendar, Exotica, Sweet Hereafter, Ararat, Chloe, and Remember. Not where the truth lies. Not where the truth lies. Do you know why? Because I 
read the novelization or the book that Where the Truth Lies is based on. And I went, I don't need to see the movie. Okay. Where, okay, so Where the Truth Lies was his, not his first real attempt at the Hollywood, probably his second. Because his first was Felicia's Journey. Certainly his biggest. I think, so there are several distinct eras in Egoyan's career. There's the early experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I don't know if experimental is the right word because there's still like narrative stories. The weirder stuff, if you may. The weirder stuff. Then with Exotica, Sweet Hereafter, Felicia's Journey, Ararat, this is when he was kind of an art house name, mm-hmm. a brand, somebody who Miramax would distribute and who could conceivably get an Oscar nomination. Or Mel Gibson's company, Icon. I didn't know that. Yeah, they did. They uh, picked up and distributed Felicia's Journey. And then after, let's say, Ararat, although maybe some people would mark it earlier. Let's the government it, funding years. Let's call it the wilderness period. <laughs> the wilderness period. Well... After that, there are a lot more movies that are attempts at mainstream entertainments, but with an Egoyan flourish. And I think a lot of that probably just has to do with the fact that these are the movies that Egoyan can get the financing for, right? Yeah. Do you think so? Do you think that, like, the reason that his output has been the way that it has is because he's trying to, like, toe the line? I think to so. To make sure that he gets money the next time? I'm, I mean, I've seen an interview with him where he said that he was able to make The Sweet Hereafter because Exotica was a success. I mm-hmm. mean, he is... But his films are not successes, like, in the last few years. So he's trying to do this one thing that's not working. I don't know, maybe Chloe did well on VOD or something. Did it? I don't know. All right. I did not like Chloe. Yeah, Chloe. It's bad. So this is a movie where a bunch of Hollywood stars... His starriest cast ever, I would say. Yeah, Liam Neeson... Julianne uh, Moore, Amanda Seyfried. Yep. And they all play out the lamest kind of Skidamax um, (laughs) plot shot in this dreamy, preposterous... Look how important this is. Julianne Moore thinks her husband, Liam Neeson, is cheating on her. So she hires a sex worker, played by Amanda Seyfried, to start an affair with him to prove that he's a cheater. Yeah. And then, you know, there are some twists. We find out Amanda Seyfried may not be all that she seems. And then she turns into a single white female. The problem, I think, with Egoyan's later movies is he makes trash. I mean, Where the Truth Lies is, and Chloe, and the new one, remember, they're trashy stories. But he doesn't commit to it. There's actually a remarkable continuity, I think, in his style from the beginning to later on, because they still have the same tone. They still have the same puzzle box structure. Mm -hmm. And yet the ideas become less compelling and the material becomes more exploitation-y. Yeah, I mean, something like Chloe, I think, could only work... If the filmmaker was aware of how, like, kind of derivative and crazy this idea is, where it's just like, she's trying to destroy our marriage! Oh my god, it's crazy! Imagine if Paul Verhoeven directed it. Or imagine if Paul Verhoeven had directed Where the Truth Lies. They would have had more propulsion, and I think they would have been smarter, frankly. Well, uh, when I was watching Chloe, something that I thought about was Side Effects, which is Steven Soderbergh's film, which did the same kind of... Erotic thriller. Erotic thriller. But the thing about Chloe is that, it, like, I, I it's totally humorless. Yeah, and the only thing that I really latched onto was, whoa, we're shooting in Toronto. I know all these places. Oh God, the one of the great Toronto films. So here's a little fun for anyone listening who lives in Toronto. Liam Neeson works at the Royal Conservatory of Music, and every day he goes for lunch at Cafe Diplomatico. So that's a long walk. <laughs> is it? It's not that long. 
for lunch? <laughs> Come on. Hey, how did you like the scene where uh, Neeson and Amanda Seyfried uh, go for a date at Allen Gardens and she you know, gives him I've, a handjob? I've never been to Allen Gardens. Well, I mean, if she were giving him a handjob in real life at Allen Gardens, she would probably have to duck from a lot of school groups. <laughs> they, went to, they went in the back to the secret place where nobody goes. You know, the other thing about Chloe and where the truth lies is for somebody who's so interested in transgressing sexual boundaries and in weird sexual behavior, Egoyne's a bit of a prude, don't you Mm -hmm. think? Especially in Chloe, where this air of light lesbianism is treated like an end of the world thing. Yeah, or in Where the Truth Lies, which is kind of about a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis type comedy duo. The big twist is that Colin Firth wants to have sex with Kevin Bacon. Spoiler. And, you know, when it's presented that big, that's when you're like, huh, okay. Yeah. But that could be the symptom of having these puzzle box structures and having to find a twist at the end of it. (laughs) And when you've been doing it for like 25 years of your life, you're going to start running out of those twists and you're going to have to go back to the well. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Hey, so let's talk about Remember, his newest (sighs) one. I mean, it feels like we've just been like... (laughs) Digging him a grave this entire time. Can't we just go out on like a positive note before we move on to remember? Uh, Okay, let's talk more about the earlier ones. Which ones did you like? I really like the adjuster. Mm. Have you seen that one? A long time ago. I felt that it was a little bit more closer to his earlier three films with the kind of coherence of Exotica. And it's that weirdness that makes me attractive to the way that he presents these stories. So it's about a guy that when houses burn down, he goes and he helps the people insurance claims. You know, if you're going to take a real important... I keep using the word important. I need another word for this. No, he invites the term, I think. Kind of view on things. If you make things baffling, I find that more attractive as a viewer. Because you, you know, when you don't give answers... The viewer creates their own answers, and that's usually always going to be more interesting than what the filmmaker is going to present. What did you think of The Sweet Hereafter? I liked it. Okay. Didn't love it. The thing about The Sweet Hereafter is there's an amazing Ian Holm performance in the film, Mm -hmm. but I found like it was a little bit too kind of bubbling under the surface, and it never reached any kind of emotional climax, and even something like Exotica did for me. Okay. And... There's one amazing scene where Ian Holm has this monologue about trying to get his daughter to the hospital when she was bit by a spider. That's the highlight of the film Mm -hmm. to me. But that comes halfway through. I remember being very moved by it when I saw it 10 years ago. I mean, a lot of people were. Like, it was a huge hit. It was, I I don't know how it stands, but it was the biggest international Canadian hit for a long time. Yeah, that probably makes sense. But Uh, Bow Cop, Bad Cop came and... (laughs) Nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. And he lost to uh, James Cameron. (laughs) Titanic. You you don't like calendar though which i don't is, like calendar you know no. film 101 staple yes. here in ah, but it feels so like film 101 that was the biggest problem i had with it i remember kind of liking calendar adam mcgoyan stars in the movie with his wife basically there are two things that happen in the movie it alternates between two things there are there's home movie footage of him. Who does he play in it? Like uh, he's, he's taking photos he, for a calendar. He's tracing his Armenian heritage, mm-hmm. you know, visiting Armenia while his wife falls in love with their tour guide. And then it cuts back and forth between those home video scenes and Igoyan sitting at a table with a different escort. And he keeps trying to find an escort who looks more and more like his wife. 
and they have very repetitive conversations. I got it. I got it after 10 minutes. Didn't you laugh a little bit every time he pours the wine? And then they get up and go to the phone? Yeah, Yeah. I I got it, though. Okay, well, what can I say? I have patience for kind of repetitive uh, heart cinema. Yeah, you're a real Chantal Ackerman fan. Maybe we should say something about his Armenian heritage. Yeah, which we did not mention at all. Uh, I read that, so he was born in Egypt to Armenian parents. Uh, He moved to Canada in an early age, and when he was in Canada, he essentially as a child, renounced his Armenian heritage, mm-hmm. wanting to integrate into Canadian society. And then he rediscovered his Armenian heritage again when he was at the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. when he studied it. Uh, so he tackles Armenia in a lot of his films, particularly Ararat, which is about the Armenian genocide. It's about somebody making a film about the Armenian genocide again. Ararat, the parts that are not strictly about making that film... I play by the same rules that all of his other films play, which is like a puzzle box that they're slowly revealing what all these characters and their interactions mean. But the film that they're making is so lame. Well, it's isn't it supposed to be kind of like a Hollywood prestige? It movie? is, but then you have to sit and watch it, and that's the problem. Like, <laughs> yeah, they do. Like at one point, a guy goes, "You're working with one of the best directors in the business," and the other person goes, "Yeah, maybe ten years ago, Oof. but not anymore." <laughs> Life imitating art. Hey, I want to tell you, before we go further to remember... <laughs> before we, like, take our, our weapons out. You said that everybody had an Adam Agoyan story. Here's mine. Uh, so I saw him maybe a year ago at the Lightbox coming out of a, a Kira Stomi movie. I, think mm. was, um, I saw somebody corner him in the hallway and say, um, excuse me, sir, can I have a moment of your time? And Egoyan looking at him kind of wearily and saying, uh, okay. And then this guy said, okay, the year was 2009. I had just come out of a screening of The Limits of Control and you were there. You were the first famous film director I'd ever seen in person. And, and anyway, I walked off. But, <laughs> you didn't want to hear how that Well, ended. I did kind of want to hear, but it was almost too excruciating to watch Adam Egoyan be cornered in a hall by somebody who saw him at a screening that must happen all the time i'm sure it does and, and like it's sad he sits at home going should why I do go i out? have such a recognizable face <laughs> <laughs> why like do it i pr- become mean i don't know it probably happens more to like david cronenberg or woody allen or mm-hmm. other people who are more famous yeah but the thing about adam going is that like you said he's around right if he, the sort of people who go to the light box would recognize him yes okay remember I, I I pushed this one off for a it while. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, actually. I found myself somewhat entertained by it. I would have liked it better if somebody else had directed it. We should tell people what it is. Okay. It's Christopher Plummer playing a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor who is given a mission by Martin Landau, Bela Lugosi himself. Another Holocaust survivor in the film. To go out and murder the uh, German officers that were in charge of their camp. But there's a twist. Yeah. It's that Christopher Plummer has dementia. Spoiler. And that's not a spoiler, but we'll get into spoilers. Okay. Come on. Yeah. Is he has dementia. He can't remember like past like 10 minutes, let's say. And he has to carry around a note that tells him what he does. So I just told you this story. I'm going to give you a beat. And Christopher Plummer is looking for the people that killed his family. Can't remember stuff. Can you guess what the twist is? At a, at a concentration camp, okay? You got it! You're right! Christopher Plummer is the murderer! <laughs> now, I listened to the commentary track on this movie. Oh my god, that's commitment. And I was shocked to hear uh, famed Canadian producer Robert Lantos appear on the commentary track with Segoyan and the screenwriter. 
And they are in love with this film. <laughs> like, they think that the idea of the story of a Holocaust survivor hunting people who killed his family to be so important and a, something that needs to be told because those people are dying. But they don't really talk about no. the fact that it is held upon the dumbest twist you can do. It is a stupid twist. I thought there were some interesting ideas in the film. <laughs> and then there's a scene where Christopher Plummer jumps on the horse and chases after <laughs> the guy. Wait, how can he chase after himself if he's the one that's also the murderer? You know, the idea that there are all of these, or there were all of these Nazis who mm. fled to other countries and lived happy lives and possibly indoctrinated their kids into their beliefs, I think is an interesting one. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Kitchener, Waterloo. Uh, hunting Nazis. Which, yeah, hunting <laughs> Nazis. But it used to be Berlin, Ontario. So mm. it was kind of the place in Ontario where if somebody was in the SS and they wanted to flee to Canada, they'd come there. Really? Just because it's called Berlin? Well, like... there was a significant German diaspora huh. there. But I remember, you know, as late as 10 years ago, they were still finding elderly SS people there. And I remember even reading editorials in the newspapers there that were kind of like, well, it's been it's been 60 years. Should we should we learn to forgive? Should we move on? Which no, uh, we, we should not. I think. No, absolutely. If, not. if you've been shoving people into ovens and then you've lived a happy, comfortable life for the next 60 years, I think I think five years of sadness at the end is perfectly justified. So I think this story is something that could be told. But... And there's, a, I think, a good scene in this movie where he goes to see somebody who has died, but his son is mm-hmm. there and his son is just kind of a standard like best scene in the movie. Yes, just a standard cop who's who's got a Nazi flag up in the house and he's really excited to see Christopher Plummer. Oh, man, you knew dad during the war this is so cool and then he finds out he's a jew i think that's an interesting example and you know we've seen so many nazis in the last two months of that kind of normalization of it well like, just it the, could be just the fact it could be officer. anywhere yeah. it could be anywhere and christopher Plummer gives a great performance in this yeah movie. terrific now that we've gotten all that out of the way yeah this movie looks super cheap it's insane it, it looks awful yeah shot by Paul Sarasi, the guy who shot Exotica in every film since then. It has the look to it, just this kind of antiseptic, brightly lit look that made me think of a later Fairly Brothers movie, <laughs> like The Three Stooges or something. And Agoyan doesn't decide if he wants this to really be exploitative or he wants it to be arty. So we get this middle ground yeah. where it's not really that impactful because it looks so inexpensive and kind of like a TV movie. He also shoots it like a TV movie. like Well, just... a lot of handheld camera work. Mm-hmm. Which in the commentary, he makes a note being like, I thought this needed it. It needed that kind of you are there feeling. doesn't feel like that. The defenders of this movie at the time were making the case that, oh, it's better than Devil's Not or The Captive or the other ones because he's embracing the fact that it's a B movie and it's he's just not, pulpy. He's, he's not, not embracing, not. No. yeah. This movie, I think if it were directed by somebody who just directed it, as kind of a tight, you know, tough thriller, a real stripped down movie. It a could rolling have been fun. thunder, if you will. Yeah, a rolling thunder. It could have been fun and it would have still had the same ideas in it. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's a movie that has all the hallmarks of Canadian cinema that I don't like. Yeah, the cheapness. And just bad kid actors, too. Oh, God. The like, worst. they are really bad in this movie. That scene on the train. <laughs> Hard to watch, honestly. Yeah. Uh, point of cast, though, like Bruno Ganz is in it. Yeah. Uh, um, other, other people whose names I'm forgetting. Uh, yeah, Fame J- Jorgen Prochnov or whatever. Star of Death Boot, yes. Yeah. And, and Martin Landau is great to see. Oh, yeah, because yeah. he doesn't really act that much. Did you hear that Martin Landau doesn't act because he's mostly a teacher 
and that yeah he teaches at the actor studio but i i mean he's also very old yes I mean, he's that too actually he's in the new frank d'angelo film the red, oh, maple, no! the red maple leaf i'm sorry to say so the question has to be asked has adam mcgoyan just lost his touch or lost interest has he been going down a path in his filmmaking trying to do something that is not his forte and that he could still get that you know magic back if he just tried to re-embrace what got him into filmmaking in the first place I don't know. Um, it was a little weird watching some of his earlier ones and seeing how kind of unhip they are, how mm. square they are. There's no irony there. Mm-hmm. There's no humor. Uh, mm, I don't know about that. Th- like, I don't know. There's there's so kind of, I don't want to say ponderous, mm-hmm. but they're very self-important. Yes. It, it was just hard to adjust to that. Yeah. And it was hard for me to look at the earlier ones again. Uh, without seeing my disenchantment with the later ones, mm. like seeing them through that lens. That's why I started with Exotica, yeah. because I could start with the one that I, everybody universally loved. Yeah. And so if I started with Remember and moved my way back, can you imagine starting at the end of his career and watching chronologically backwards? Uh, it would be interesting. <laughs> I think it would be exhausting. Yes. Honestly. I think you'd be really tired by the time you made it to the early ones. Well, I think that there's still an Adam McGoyan out there who has a few more great movies in him. He's a smart man. Mm-hmm. He's a good filmmaker when he when he is a good filmmaker. I think that he just needs to embrace the kind of instincts that he's already working with. Like the thing about Chloe and Remember is that like if they just went in all the way you would have much better movies. You would, but I don't think he's the filmmaker to do that, actually. Mm. I think, as we've seen from his movies that are good, he's not good at really propulsive entertainments. I think for those movies to be good, you'd have to just get somebody else. Oh, really? So, so I, you think, I think he should he, try to avoid the genre stuff? Yeah, it's not his forte. He doesn't know how to do it. I think he should get back to the like, uh, cerebral... Yeah. Yeah. kind of crazy nonsense movies where you're like wait what is what is going on <laughs> sure. oh i get it at the end sure that's one way to put it <laughs> so we have no letters this week oh come on where, where can they uh, where can they write us important cinema club podcast at gmail.com do you want me to make up a letter no I dear don't important cinema club podcast i'm a huge fan i love your podcast <laughs> No, yeah. I, I think Will sounds very handsome, but Justin also <laughs> sounds very cool, too. What does Justin look like? <laughs> yeah. Once again, that's Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And you're going to want to send us some letters because we're going to have a contest. Are we now? Yes, okay, we are. What's, what's the contest? So the contest is we want you to do work for us. And by that, I mean advertise the Important Cinema Club. Unpaid labor. Yeah, unpaid. Where, you know, all we want you to do is just go on a website and just, you know, link us, make a drawing, go to your local library, put a poster up. Yeah, <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever the most creative is. Or, you know, go on go on Pornhub and leave a comment. <laughs> go on Reddit. Go on a, the IMDb message board. Oh, go hurry, to, because you only have a day left before they disappear. Go to go to X Hamster, go to RedTube. <laughs> So just go those, to are, those are all pornography. Go sites. to go to Bang Bros. Don't do that because Will's already all said it, so it's not going to have any novelty to it. Oh yeah. And although if you do if you do put a poster up of us in your local library, we encourage that. So it's not about getting the most people, which would be nice as new listeners to the podcast. It's just whatever the thing that we like the most. Yeah. And and about getting the best people. Right? <laughs> like we don't want the riffraff around here, right? <laughs> So if you do that, just take a photo, like a screen grab if you post it online, an actual photo if you do it in your day-to-day life. Oh, and what, what will they what will the reward be? The reward will be we will have to do an episode 
on whatever the person that wins wants. Yeah. Every now and then we get an email from somebody saying, hey, you should do this person. You should yeah. do that person. You know. And, and we then we always, yeah, we always go, putting it in the box. And like we we do. It's yes. on a list somewhere, but like we're never in the mood. But if you win this contest, we will have to do what you want. Yeah. Like, is there limits, Will? No. No? <laughs> I can't think of any limits. So, what would be your limit? Uh, I don't know. Um, Snuff? <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I would well, do it. Come what on. What if the subject was like, you do pornography? Fine. I, I would love to do pornography. Uh, I'm trying to think of like... We've done pornography Yeah, we past. already have. I'm trying to think of like, what would be a filmmaker where I'd be like, ugh. Well, there are definitely ones I would like to do more than others. Because, uh, I mean... We only really have to watch two of their films, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can pick those two films. Yeah. You whoever wins gets all the control. And yeah. come on. This is one of those contests that if you just go do it, you'll probably win. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So next week, what are we doing, Will? Oh yeah, we're doing uh, British comedies. We're doing uh, a fish called Wanda. Uh, and with Nail and I. Yes. And we have a special guest coming on. We're not going to say who it is in, in case something gets jinxed. <laughs> yes, that's right. The special guest is me and Will. Hey. It's always special to have us around. And you, the listener. <laughs> that's right. And so we'll be watching those two films and talking kind of broadly about British comedy, which is something that we haven't touched upon at all. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? It is very weird. Yeah. The Knights That Say Knee, right? Were you one of those nerds, Will? Uh, this is an ex-parrot. <laughs> All right, don't forget to go on iTunes, uh, write us a review. Maybe that's how you could win this contest. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Let's raise the stakes a little. Whoever wins this podcast becomes an officially designated important cinema club um, um, cinema boy. Or like what? Or, cinema boy. Or, or, uh, or like what's a, what's a fun Like a name? title? What's a fun name we could give them? Like, uh, oh, soldier of cinema. You become you can become an important cinema club soldier of cinema. And and we'll send you maybe like a little uh, email that has a certificate <laughs> that, you, that me and uh, Will have signed. Yeah, like, let's actually do that. All right. Don't you want that, guys? <laughs> and have an episode where you know we'll do whatever you want. We'll be fucking puppets dancing. Yeah, yeah. For whatever subject that you want. Sounds great. All right. Well, my name's Justin the Clue. I was Will Sloan. So thanks for listening. So it was a big week for cinema. One of the uh, most anticipated releases finally hit the screens. It was the Lego Batman movie. I watched it on a double feature with Patterson. <laughs> Which one did you watch first? Patterson. Good choice. Always because I was exhausted second. after the Lego Batman movie. I think I would have had trouble adjusting to the slow pace of Patterson. I that, thought Patterson was great, by the way. Great movie. Beautiful. Yeah. The Lego Batman movie was something that, you know, I was looking forward to. Yeah, eh, whatever. moderately. Yeah. yeah. And the one thing that I really enjoyed about it is that it actually committed to trying to tell an emotional story within the confines of a film that's selling a toy. I thought it was a fun movie. I don't know if I really bought the emotional side of it, to be honest. I, I felt like... Uh, the emotional beats landed were felt or felt a little hollow in the context of a movie that is otherwise just like quip a minute, mm-hmm. like nonstop pop culture, like Robot Chicken, basically. Yeah, well, like, directed by the guy who directed most of the episodes of Robot Chicken. I didn't know that. So yes. that, that explains it. I mean, having said that, so that didn't quite work for me. And I also, after about an hour, I was honestly kind of ready to go home. Yeah, I was, but like, you're tired. someone <laughs> that has said that when movies are really insane and kind of assaulting you with that, yeah. you get tired pretty fast, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like it's just like eating too much cake almost. Mm-hmm. Having said that, like the movie was fun and it was a lot better than it deserved to be, yes. frankly. And 
you know, as a longtime follower of Batman and his lore, you know, it was just fun to see all the references to every facet of Batman. Even the uh, black and white serials. Oh, man. You know I liked that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you felt that they respected the Batman mythos? You weren't like... They also, like, caught what was fun about Batman, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I think that Batman as a character in cinema has always been the loner, and he's only had the Bat family in the TV show and in the Lego Batman movie. Like, it's a movie that, that gets Batman. It gets that like the villains are cool and the gadgets are cool all the stuff that frankly the last couple of batman movies have tried to downplay christopher nolan and uh zack snyder yeah like it gets back to the fun of batman without venturing into joel schumacher territory how did you feel that like it was just selling you toys I mean, I object to the movie on ideological grounds. So what, how did you feel about the Lego movie? I thought it was very good. Yeah. And I went in with a huge chip on my shoulder. Because <laughs> you? yeah. you're like, you advert, like two hour like, advertisement? The, the Lego movie? What the fuck is this? But I mean, like at some point, it's undeniable that they yeah. did a good job with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for an enemy film, I thought it was very good. <laughs> an enemy film? <laughs> like the Jake Gyllenhaal, the Neveneuve classic enemy? <laughs> also shot in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Did you hear about the fact that, like, so the Lego Batman movie, I think it did good. It didn't do, like, amazing. Yeah. And that Ben Affleck does not want to be Batman anymore. And they cannot lock down a director. I think that's incredible. Well, To I, make a Batman movie. I mean, I just think that's so funny. It's like this multi-billion dollar industry. Like, theoretically, any director... Well, I mean, I get why directors don't want to do it. Like, mm. why would you want to be... Cha- Waste, like, three years of your life. Change to this... Thing where you can't have any creative input i mean if it were still the days when you know tim burton could make a batman movie mm. and make a tim burton movie then that's one thing but it's not that anymore like they can't even keep matt reeves a director that i like who directed the, uh, the last planet of the apes movie mm-hmm. and cloverfield and the remake of let the right one in they're like he's got the job nope drops out a day later wouldn't it be fun if you could still make a Batman movie that was a director's vision. vision. I mean, yeah. I, I get honestly, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe well, I'm unfair because Zack Snyder did put a lot of himself. Yeah. Into... Did you hear that DC like they were advertising themselves a lot in the last year as we are the director superhero franchise. But then the David Ayer situation mm-hmm. kind of kind of hurt that. Even though David Ayer is directing another DC movie soon. Uh, and so supposedly they want uh, Mr. Mel Gibson to direct Suicide Squad 2, if the rumors are to be believed. And we talked about this, and you said there's you don't believe there's any way Mel Gibson will direct Suicide Squad 2. No, I, ju- I just don't think... I mean, I don't think Mel Gibson is in a position anymore where he needs to beg for Suicide Squad. He's nominated for Best Director this year. He's back. He can get financing for a movie of his own if he wants it. But I think he wants to be liked. Because even though that a movie like Hacksaw Ridge Mm -hmm. did very well, people still feel kind of squirrely about Mel Gibson. Rightly so. Yeah. Is he that desperate to be liked? I mean, I think he's... He's been in the doghouse for so long at this point. Yeah, but when you're trapped in, you know, um, isolation for so long, you just want, like, a few hugs or someone to go, hey, I really liked your movie, as opposed to, uh, your movie was pretty good, but you're still a terrible person. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Anyway, I guess the DC movies in their way, uh, even though I think they're fucking bad. Oh, they're so bad. But they do have a little more personality than the Marvel ones. Eh. The Marvel ones are very competent. What about Guardians of the Galaxy? I mean, even that, like, there's a uniform style to all the Marvel films, which, I mean, in a way, I sort of admire it. It's it's incredible that they've been able to build this this machine Mm -hmm. that has such a consistent quality control to it. But I would say that, like, the Marvel films have more of a directorial stamp 
than the DC films, even though the DC films only have Zack Snyder and what, David Ayer, like, man, behind their new what? movies? I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, you can see who's the guy who did the first Avengers? Joss Whedon. Yeah, I mean, I would hear people talk about the Joss Whedon touches in the mm. film, which frankly just seemed kind of insignificant to me. It's like a little ah, line of dialogue here, or a little line there. The one Marvel director I think who really made his presence felt was Shane Black. Oh, on Iron Man 3, yeah. which I really loved. What about like someone like Joe Johnston, who brought that style that he had to the Rocketeer to the Captain America films? Yeah, a little bit. Or, I mean, James bit. Guardians of the Galaxy is like no other movie that Marvel has made. Uh, I love I can be the Marvel fanboy. <laughs> I think Guardians of the Galaxy, like it has the same sort of humor that's in all of the other ones. It just has a little more of it. But I also think that you approach the Marvel films from a kind of ethical. I don't like what they're doing to cinema. Yes. Exactly. Yes, that's yeah. why. Yeah. So even if they were great, you would be like, eh, I still have problems with it. Yes. And what do you mean? I don't like, deny it. <laughs> about like the problems that you have with what the Marvel movies are doing to cinema. Maybe it's the fact that they're, that they have a cultural dominance. They yes. they have all the best talent. They mm-hmm. have, they have all the resources. Yes. Um, they suck up all the oxygen. Oh, come on. And they've also, they've also set a template for all the other studios where everyone yes. wants to make these extended universes where, but it's, that's not Marvel's fault. That's the dumb studios. I know that like, they're like, we got a but, Transformers but, no, but, writing no, room. But together. it's Marvel's fault that they've created this machine where it's like, no one movie stands on its own it's always it's always a link to the next on thing it's always moving to the next no thing, the i next disagree thing. with you well, on that matter because right. i think they do stand on their own and there's just an open-ended thing at the end like here's the thing like but, any kind of but story remember in iron man 2 when, co- when you... sam jackson shows up halfway okay through iron man 2 is that is the outliner to everything oh, come else on. <laughs> yes it is like that's like you reading a comic book and going like well this comic book is bullshit they just want me to buy the next issue and like throwing it in the garbage adventures too it's like they're constantly like bringing and all these characters from other movies and they're introducing new characters. Avengers, Avengers 2 is a perfect example of a movie that's just like that's just like a step to the next movie. Uh, well, I don't think so. I think Avengers 2 stands on its own. I don't even think it's that good. It's fine. Yeah, but that's like one it. with studio meddling. And you know what happened after Avengers 2, right? The guy that was in charge of the Marvel branch got fired. Mm. Disney fired him because they're like, we don't like your meddling that you're doing good. here. Uh, by that's the, bad. That's the other thing, too, is uh, Avengers 2 had so many fucking superheroes in it that eh. that I, I'm watching it. I, know, I, can't, I can't keep track of yeah, all Yeah, we're getting anymore. back to old man Will that was watching the Lego Batman movie that's like that's too much this podcast was produced and edited by can make productions